Well, please remain standing as you turn with me in God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 260. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 9 and 10 this morning, uh, not reading the whole uh, of either chapter, just some verses out of each. We're going to start with chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 6. Beloved saints, this is God's own word, breathed as it were from his own mouth, that we might know him and worship him. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekaroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. He was There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, and there they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. This ends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us ask his blessing on it this morning. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed from your word. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of the scriptures. Open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might behold the King of glory. Give us faith to receive all that we hear and read. Amen. You may be seated. Six years ago, back in 2015, I started an Easter series that focuses on what God said in 1 Corinthians 15. We heard it in our call to worship this morning. Let me just reread two of those verses. The Apostle Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he was raised, the resurrection. This is a pivotal doctrine in the Christian faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say things like, if Jesus is not raised, then our faith is in vain. If Jesus is not raised, we are still in our sin. In other words, if Jesus is not raised, there is no salvation. The resurrection is essential to our faith. And so the Old Testament 
anticipated it and foretold it in many ways. But more than that, the apostle claims that the Old Testament made it clear not just that Jesus would be raised from the dead, but that he would be raised on the third day. And so six years ago, I asked the question, where? Where does the Old Testament say that the Messiah would be raised on the third day? And the answer is nowhere and everywhere. There's no one prophecy that says it in those terms. However, if you ask, what is the day of resurrection in the Old Testament? Or when does it teach us to expect life to be restored? If you ask those questions, there is only one answer. It's on the third day. And so we saw how Esther was queen, but was asked to intercede for her people who were under an edict of death. And she resigned herself to death for three days, and yet on the third days was rewarded with her life back, and in fact, an equal share in the kingdom with the king. We saw that Abraham was called on to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved. And on the third day, he was given him back from death. We saw Joseph with his brother's lives in his hand, and he restored their lives on the third day. We looked at the peace offerings in the temple and how the peace offering was allowed to remain on the altar for three days and then it had to be removed. We witnessed Jonathan endure the shadow of death with David for three days as a demonstration of devotion and friendship. And then last year we grieved with Israel as the people died for three days because of the sins of their king and then life was given on the third day. But in each of these, the question we've sought to answer is not simply, when will Jesus be raised? But what do each of these passages teach us about the resurrection? Each of these passages shows us something that God wants us to know and learn and understand about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's certainly true today as we, as we turn to 1 Samuel 9 and 10 and the announcement of Israel's first king, Saul. This is another passage that teaches us to see the third day as the day of restoration and new life. And as it does, it drives home the reality that God's grace is so profound that on the third day he provides a king and a savior even for the very people who would reject him. That God's grace is so profound that on the third day he would show mercy and grace in the form of a king and savior for the very ones who are trying to push him away. That's what we're going to see as we look at this passage this morning. Now the beauty is in the story, and so we want to take our time in rehearsing it. And then we want to look at... at the people's rejection of God as king and, as, and their sinful demand for a king like all the other nations. And then we want to see how God yields to their demands but still shows mercy and grace in his choice of a king. And then finally we want to see how all of this prepares us for the coming of Jesus Christ whose story clearly echoes that of Saul but with a few key differences. That's our plan. That's our goal this morning. Now, our, our passage has a backstory. It's as well known as it is heartbreaking. Samuel was a godly man, a prophet, who led Israel for many years. 
And as he grew older, the people of Israel came to him and demanded that that he appoint a king over them like the other nations. The desire for a king itself is not bad. In Genesis 17, God clearly told Abraham, kings will descend from you, kings will come from you. In Genesis 49, he told Judah that, that the kingly line will come from your tribe, your family. In Deuteronomy 17, God laid out instructions for the future kings of Israel. So it's not the desire for a king in and of itself that's bad. The problem was what kind of king they wanted. They wanted a king that resembled those of their surrounding neighbors. They didn't want the the kind of king that God wanted for them. They didn't want a king known for displaying the wisdom and the justice of God. Now, before you judge them too harshly, how many times have you rejected God's provision for something else that you thought would bring you happiness or bring you security? How many times have you demanded something that God has warned you will only hurt you? How many times have you rejected God demanding something else? Beloved, we're not that different. We're really no different from those that day who were tempted to say, if only we had this kind of king, then we would be happy, then we would be secure. And Samuel tried to warn them. You get, attack, you get a king like the other nations, and you'll get a king like the other nations. He's, here's what he's going to do. He's going to tax you. He's going to uh, draft your young men for his army. He will uh, bring your young women to serve, in, uh, to serve him in his house. He'll, he'll take the best of the land and keep it for himself. And you'll end up regretting that you demanded it. Be careful what you ask for. But the people were not deterred. They wanted a king. They wanted someone the nations would fear. They wanted power. And Samuel was grieved and he wept. And the Lord came to him and told him, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God told Samuel that he was going to give the people what they asked for. That's the back story as we come to chapter 9. And it all starts with some donkeys, which in and of itself is not all that surprising. Way back in Genesis 49, when when God told uh, Judah that Israel's kings would come from him, he mentioned donkeys. That theme would later be picked up by the prophet Zechariah. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that the story of Israel's first king begins with some donkeys. There was a man named Kish who had lost some of his donkeys and he had a son who went looking for them. And you sense that this is leading somewhere. With, with the backstory of chapter 8, you think maybe this is leading towards the king. Maybe this is the king. But there's just one problem. He's not from the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. But why should that bother a people who have already rejected God? And this man was everything they were looking for. At 30 years old, he was tall, handsome, and powerfully built. And his name was Saul. And 
And that should alone, that alone should uh, give the people pause. Uh, Saul in Hebrew literally means the thing asked for. In other words, their first king's name was basically, you asked for it. And after a couple days of looking, they had no luck. Ready to give up, they, they consider the last possible resort, ask a man of God, ask a prophet. And it just so happened that Samuel was nearby and they figured, why not ask him? And it turned out that Samuel was already expecting Saul. Let's read uh, chapter 9, verses 14 through 20, and then the first two verses of chapter 10. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, he it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And now chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, And he poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? The day before, God had appeared to Samuel and told him he'd be meeting the new king the next day. But what he told Samuel was surprising. He said, tomorrow... About this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him. He, anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God's people had rejected him, pushed him away, demanded that he leave them alone, demanded a man in whom they could place their trust. And God only gave them part of what they asked for. If he had given them everything they had asked for, he would have abandoned them. And that would have been the end of their story. Their enemies would have come in and wiped them out without God's protection, and that would have been it. 
But God couldn't do that to, to his people. He had sworn to be their God, to be their protector. He had sworn to love them and show them forgiveness. And so even as he hands them over to their foolishness, he also promises that this king will save them from their enemies. He knows that in his people's sin and folly, they, they ask for things that can only harm them. And so even as they rage against him, he shows them kindness. As Saul came walking towards Samuel to ask about those donkeys, he has no idea what's in store for him. But as he approached, God whispered in Samuel's ears words that would come back to haunt Israel. He said to Samuel, Behold the man. This is the one of whom I spoke. He is the one who will restrain my people from their self-destructive foolishness. Despite all their rebellion, despite their rejection, despite pushing God away, despite their sinful demands, God provided a king. He provided a savior. And with those words, behold the man, he made his choice known. And then Samuel anointed Saul to mark him out as king. In fact, he kissed him to identify him as God's choice. This is the one. But the story doesn't end there. It's a lot for Saul to take in. It would be a lot for the people to take in. And so Samuel told them that there would be a few signs to demonstrate, to prove that this was God's doing. First, what had been lost for three days would be found. But it would become quickly clear that it was not the donkeys that troubled Saul's father anymore. Any parent who's let their child go out for a while to look for something knows what it's like to quickly stop worrying about the thing and only about the child. And after three days, Kish was worried about his son. Was he lost? Was he dead? And on the third day, the son was returned to the father. But as he is, everything has changed. He is now the anointed king. And we're told that the Holy Spirit was given to him so that he could do his job, so that, so that he could deliver his people. What a three days. This is the story of Israel's first king. But by the end of those three days, God announced, Behold the man. And he's anointed and he's identified with a kiss and he's given the Holy Spirit and he would protect the very people who had pushed God away, who had rejected him and said, leave us alone. Saul would go on to rescue Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. God would use him to bless his people. But Saul would be plagued by a divided heart. And Israel would learn that someone greater was needed. Maybe you know where this is going. About a thousand years later, Israel was in much the same place 
Again, they were rejecting God's place in their lives and his voice in their hearts. They claimed to want a leader that would strike fear into their enemies. And this time, God did not send a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Instead, he came himself. He was born of a woman of the tribe of Judah. And for 30 years, he grew up in relative obscurity. But unlike Saul, there was nothing impressive about this man. His looks, his appearance, we are told, were entirely unremarkable. And eventually he would be thrust into the spotlight. And this would lead him to his final week. And it all started with a donkey. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And everyone was excited and they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But by the time that week was over, they had all turned on him. They didn't want him to be their king. They wanted to kill him. They demanded his blood. Given the chance to free him, they chose instead a criminal named Barabbas. Refusing to get their own hands dirty, they tried to get the Romans to do their dirty work. Their enemies. But Pilate wanted nothing to do with it. He he could see that the people had been whipped into a frenzy. And he could see that Jesus was clearly innocent. He even tried to appease the people. He he had Jesus beaten and then dressed mockingly in a a purple robe like a king and, and given a crown, but a mocking crown of thorns. Surely when the people saw him in such a humiliated state, they would not see him as a threat. They would not demand his life. They might beat him. They might, they might do it for a day, but then just let him be. And it all seemed to be working until Pilate made a fatal error. As Pilate brought him out to the people, he chose the worst possible words he could have chosen. Unknowingly, he quoted God's words to Samuel when God revealed his choice for a king, and he said, Behold the man. Combine that with the fact that just the day before, someone had anointed him. Add to that the fact that just the night before, he had been identified with a kiss. It all added up to more than they could take. God was telling them that this man this bruised and battered man, this unremarkable man, was his choice for their king, that he himself had come to reclaim his throne. But their rejection of God was more resolute than ever. No longer would they say they wanted a king like their nations, like the neighbors. They would now claim to have no king but Caesar. And they demanded his blood. And he was rushed up a hill, placed on a cross, and murdered. And yet, here's the most amazing part, but perhaps it should not be so surprising to us, not if we know Israel's story of the first king. It's this. Even in the midst of all of that, 
God planned to show mercy to the very ones who were pushing him away and rejecting him. Just as Saul was meant to be a king who would deliver his people from their enemies, Jesus is God's choice to bring ultimate deliverance, not just from the Philistines or or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or even the Romans. Jesus came to deliver his people from their greatest enemies, sin and death. God was showing the greatest possible kindness imaginable in sending him to a people who deserved nothing but his anger and his wrath. But they went and they did the unthinkable. They killed him. Even those who were closest to him believed all was lost. Like those donkeys, like Saul's father worried about him. For three days they worried. For three days they descended into despair. But if they knew their scriptures, if they saw the parallels to Saul's story, if they remembered the details, they might remember that when all hope is lost, things change on the third day. That God poured out his spirit. That the son was restored, found, and declared to be king. That victory comes on the third day. And sure enough, on the morning of the third day, everything changed. Jesus emerged from the grave with the power to deliver his people. He possessed the Holy Spirit to give as a down payment of their heavenly inheritance. And he conquered sin and death so that not even the grave could hold his people. And so his resurrection was God's sign to us of his choice for king. That victory was his, that God hears our cries and sent a Savior. The resurrection was proof that God's grace is so profound that on the third day, he provides a king and a Savior even for those who would reject him and push him away. Beloved, when your conscience assails you for your failures when it reminds you of the many ways that you have rejected God and tried to find your happiness and your security in another. You need to remember that the resurrection is God's reminder to you that sin does not have the final word. That God's grace is so profound that that he sends a savior for the very people who reject him that those who come to him in faith and repentance find eternal life in a heavenly king. This is the message of 1 Samuel 9 and 10. It's the message of John 19. And it's the message that's visibly portrayed to us in the Lord's Supper this morning. Like our Lord The bread and the wine are are really nothing special to look at. They're unimpressive. And by God's design, they're not meant to be robust. But like Jesus, looks can be deceiving. Like Jesus, this small piece of bread and this small cup of wine can communicate something infinitely profound. The secrets of heaven. 
And through this, Jesus declares that he came into this world to show mercy to the very people who rejected him. He came to be their savior and to be their king. We have to use bread and wine because his body and his blood did not remain on this earth. There's no body for us to visit because our Savior, he rose again, victorious over death. He was raised up triumphant and he ascended into heaven where he sat down on the eternal throne and where he remains until he comes to take us home. But he's present with us today by his Holy Spirit. He shares a meal with us to tell us that his grace has replaced his anger with love and forgiveness. He assures us that we have peace with him. And so let us come and celebrate our risen Savior, our King, and our God, who has loved us with a perfect love. And please bow in prayer with me. Father, you know our fickle hearts. How often we have desired that you would just leave us alone so that we might pursue the things we want instead of the things that you tell us are good for us. How every day we reject you in a thousand little ways. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We rejoice that your love is greater than our sin, greater than our folly, and greater than death itself. Father, help us to delight in your ways, to delight in our King, to follow him and to obey him. And when we fail, forgive us and bring us back to you. May Jesus be exalted in our lives, we pray. Amen.